Reading a story from the grapevine from May 1997. It's called, Take My Advice, I Am Not Using It. I was feeling rather depressed and called my sponsor and found her in a similar mood. I said, what shall I do for my depression? At first, she said, I don't know. If you figure it out, call me back. Hmm. Then, because she is, she is a loving person, a good friend, and has a terrific grasp of the AA program, she shifted into sponsorship gear and told me to do the following. One, wear life like a loose garment. Two, don't take myself too seriously. Three, count my blessings. Four, find another alcoholic to work with. Five, read the big book and go to a meeting. Then she laughed and said, take my advice, I am not using it. I called one of my sponsors and she was also in a negative frame of mind. I addressed her problem and suggested one through five listed above. She said she had a sponsor in a melancholy mood. I proposed that I and my sponsor, she and her sponsor could form a singing group called the depression, and sing the blues. She was not amused. Later in that day, my, my sponsor dropped by with another friend for coffee. And what a change. She made a 12-step call and taken another alcoholic to a detox. They recounted how she looked like 10 miles of bad road, was ill and full of fear and remorse. Suddenly we were all full of gratitude and laughing at the insanity of self-pity and self-imposed depression. We remember all the pain and confusion of our early days in Alcoholics Anonymous. The simplicity of this program never changes. What works is constant, trust in God, clean house, and work with others. This is from Terry B. from Concord, California. It's interesting. I was in Concord, California in uh, As Bill Sees It meeting a couple of weeks ago. When I was up there, spent a lot of time in that area, going to detoxes and enjoying the people there. Thank you so much for listening. Let me know what you think. Grapevine Reading, 2010, August. Keeping it green. Life is again worth living. A hopeful newcomer finds. I've only been an alcoholic anonymous a short time, and I'm coming up on four months. Someone would say, just shut up and listen to us newcomers with our drunkologues and self-pity, and in some cases they would be right. But I feel we have something important to contribute. We're still very green and vulnerable, like flowers. We're blossoming and wanting to share our strength and hope for a sober future. In my 33 years of drinking career, I could have... You know, I never could have imagined a day without alcohol of one sort or another. But thanks to this program, my short stay in rehab, and you people, I have a whole new outlook on life. I am growing stronger every day and now have hope for a brighter future, free from the bondage of alcohol. I say the serenity prayer daily. Believe me, it is a necessity. I'm learning when to shut up to stop trying to run the show and to accept each day as God's will. The, this makes life a whole lot easier. I'm learning to shut up 
to stop trying to run the show and to accept each day as God's will. This makes life a whole lot easier by keeping an open mind to the fact that I am an alcoholic and that I can't control people or situations around me. I'm slowly learning to go with the flow. I am very grateful to AA for the world of wisdom being passed on. There is a comfort in the knowledge that I am not alone in this fight. Life is again worth living. I can laugh again and I don't have to be drunk to do it. I am no longer running away from my problems, but instead facing them head on with a new strength and courage. I can't wait to be able to inspire another newcomer someday to open her heart and mind to this new peace I have found. There is hope, and I got that at these tables. You only need openness to find your higher power. In the first few weeks, I found that power and my fellow alcoholics who shared their experiences with me made me feel welcome. It was overwhelming at first, but much better than that isolation I felt when sinking into a bottle for relief from self-hatred or whatever my problem was that day. I never really needed an excuse to drink. It's not even like it made me feel good. Toward the end, and I felt was numb and dead inside. Then I started to pray. Not those funny, self-indulgent ones either, like God, just get me out of this and I'll never drink again as I'm throwing up. Those days of hugging the toilet are over. Now I wake up, get on my knees, and truly thank God for another day sober. Then I ask for guidance in the hours to come. It isn't always easy, but the problem I approach don't send me running to the liquor store anymore. So I am going to keep on coming back with my ears ready to catch some information to keep me on track and an open heart for God's love and guidance. Without that, I'd be lost, a lost soul. Thanks again for giving me a safe haven. I don't have to feel, I don't have to feel alone. One last thing that came to mind the other night was the phrase, you can't teach old dogs new trick. Yet, here we all are, living proof that indeed you can, with catchphrases like, easy does it, one day at a time, and keeping it simple. And with, of course, the serenity prayer, I'm going to keep coming back because this works. This comes from, from Sue E. from Hammond, Indiana. <laughs> A hundred cups of coffee. A few of us were lingering after our Sunday afternoon AA meeting when Al got a 12-step call. When I heard the address, a store near my home, I guess it came from the owner, Jim, one of my longtime friends, and I asked Al if I could go with him. I've been sober a year or two at the time. I'd never been much of a public drunk, and a few of my friends hadn't even suspected I had booze problem. So I hope if I showed up at my friend's, it would surprise him and perhaps attract him to AA. It worked a little. We talked and arranged to go to meetings. In those days, meetings were scarce, and we often went many miles, and sometimes we went in Jim's big Cadillac. As time went by, however, he cooled off and sometimes had excuses not to go. This got to be pretty regular. Jim was a quiet drinker. He could look pretty sober, but I became sure he was back on the bottle. 
Finally, politely but firmly, he said, he's gone, he'll go no more. <clears throat> My sponsor, Neil H., had given me many words of wisdom. I decided to use one of his ideas. Jim had a small coffee bar in a corner of his store, and I began to come in for a cup of coffee whenever I was in the area, which was nearly every day. I made a point of saying something to Jim each time. I made a point of not mentioning AA. I drank hundreds of coffee, cups of coffee that I didn't really want. After nearly a year, Jim disappeared, and four or five weeks later, he showed up sober. He had finally asked another AA member to help him. He went to a special and successful drawing out hospital for the, that help that worked. For years, he would say that my regular coffee drinking just about drove him nuts. He remained sober, and some 30 years later, he retired and moved away. I like to think of this as a 12-step call that lasted a year. Wow. This is from Roland Bay, from Baytown, Texas. And now, I'm going to read another story. I like these. This is from the Grapevine 1998 of May issue, by the way. Next Time. This article is called Next Time. comes from, from Jim and from West Springfield, Massachusetts. It took this AA member a long time to see what was right under his nose. <clears throat> Next Time. The word insanity gets banded about quite a bit in AA. Band aid about quite a bit in AA insanity. It's almost something we take pride in. We love to laugh at being a little strange, or even very strange. I don't want to downplay the positive power that results from learning to laugh at ourselves. Self-seriousness nearly kill me. All the same, I wonder sometimes how funny, insane behavior really is. I wonder sometimes how funny, insane behavior really is. Insanity has been described as doing the same thing over and over while expecting different results. In the discussion of step 3 and the 12 and 12, we're told that we had compulsive behaviors that cause us great unhappiness and threaten our sobriety, and that we are powerless to control them. It says that we need help from outside for these, just as we did for alcohol. But it didn't, I didn't read step three for a long time. It was too scary. I thought AA was trying to take away my freedom. No matter how often a certain behavior left me with an emotional hangover, I felt that the cure for this behavior was to repeat it until I got it right. If, if, okay, I'm going to stop right there. I'm not concentrating, so we'll stop with 100 cups of coffee. Thank you. We're recording today... Uh, a bedtime story with a bottle in his hand a newcomer finds step two on a bedroom floor this is from uh, June 2013 AA Grapevine and the gentleman here that's writing his story is Doug from Tahunga California that's where uh, my sponsor from up north Northern California uh, Jim Albert that's where he got his sobriety about 40 years ago. All right, now, here we go, the article. So many alcoholics come into AA as atheists or agnostic. 
the idea of some universal boss moving the stars around, controlling the climate and man's fortunes, is abhorrent to the intellectual. Downright primitive, in fact, like something out of a long-gone ignorant era when men believed earthquakes and hurricanes were signs of the gods' anger with mankind. I was just like that when I first came around. In fact, I'm embarrassed to say I thought perhaps I might be the one to take AA out of the 19th century and make it an attractive to intelligent alcoholics like me. Little did I know that from the very beginning of its history, compulsive overthinkers have been coming along on a regular basis, offering their original idea for improve the program for improving the program. The guy called Ed in the 12 and 12 third tradition chapter fought the God idea even before the big book was written. And Bill W. himself, when Ed came to call on him, said, My gin will last longer than his preaching. Sometimes we'll hear someone say, I love AA except for the God part. That's like saying, I love the ocean except for the wet part. The spiritual part of AA is like the wet part of the ocean. It's all there. It's all there is. It's the whole deal. All of AA's 12 steps are brilliantly designed to clear away the baggage of our own egos and align our hearts and minds with God, God's will for us, or as some say, with life on life terms. In my own case, I wasn't in AA very long before I became obvious that the people who were happy and comfortable in their sobriety were those who talked about reliance on a higher power. I was really kind of jealous of them, I thought. If only I were a little dumber, not so intellectual gifted, maybe I could believe as they do and be happy like them. The arrogance of the conviction is laughable now. Bill W. wrote in the 12th and 12th, it had been well said that almost the only scoffer at prayer are those who never tried it enough. That was me. I wasn't going to try prayer because I knew it couldn't work. Why waste my time? It wasn't until I had been going to AA meetings for eight months without success that I fell on my knees and asked God for help. It wasn't even on purpose. My first eight months in AA, I wasn't a stellar prospect. I didn't have a home group or a sponsor, and I didn't read the book or take the steps. I didn't pray or meditate or believe in God, and I was drinking every day. The only thing I did right was keep coming back, and I did that with some regularity, fortunately. Then came one day when I was at home drunk after returning from a meeting. I staggered into my bedroom, fell on my knees, and spilled a bottle of whiskey all over my bed. There were some left in the bottle, but most of it was soaking in the bedspread. I quickly set the bottle in a safe place and started sucking the whiskey out of the bedspread. I intuitively knew something was wrong with that. I was done drinking for the night, and if I was thirsty, there was whiskey in the bottle. I had been going to AA meetings for eight months and haven't even learned how not to suck whiskey out of a bedspread. 
Maybe I was one of those hopeless losers who could not get this thing. Maybe I was constitutionally incapable of being honest with myself. The evidence seemed to suggest just that. Feeling lost and alone and out of ideas, I did the only thing I could think of. I said, God, if you're there, please help me. I didn't have the immediate white lightning experience Bill W. felt at Towns Hospital. But over the next two weeks, seemingly every time I reached for a drink, a member of AA would appear. People I recognized from the meeting suddenly showed up uninvited. A waitress who worked in a neighborhood restaurant and was an AA member appeared behind the counter of my neighborhood liquor store. They were everywhere. I couldn't seem to get away from them. After a couple of weeks of what I was beginning to think of as stalking, it occurred to me that I had to get on my knees and ask God for help with a sincere prayer of desperation. God answered my prayer. That moment by the bed that night was my white light experience. That was the moment I came to believe. I had asked for help and gotten the help. I had been delivered to AA's second step. I sometimes say that God took the second step for me because I couldn't take it on my own. I don't know if that's accurate. I did ask for help. We don't really have a step for that action. And yet, I have heard many recovered alcoholics say it was the simple prayer that started their journey into recovery. For me, it came between step one and step two. I would never have done it if I could have thought of something else to do. Thank you, God, for the gift of desperation. The last 25 years of my life have been a joyful celebration of seeking God's will for me and trying to see how I can help his kids. I never knew that was the key to a happy life. Now that I know it, I can't get enough. Doug R. from Tahunga, California. Hi, I'm coming to you from the Grapevine, June 2013. The article is just the beginning. Pouring the bottle down the drain was great, but only the first step. The story comes to us from Hall W. from Pennsylvania. Berwyn, Pennsylvania. Hell. Hall. Okay, uh, during the last 18 months of my active alcoholism, I said to myself four times, once and for all, I'll quit drinking. I really mean it this time. Each time I stopped for shorter and shorter periods of time. Finally, in the spring of 1990, I knew that my way of quitting wasn't working. That's when I reached out for help. I was sent to a rehab and then attended 90 meetings in 90 days. I tried to be compliant and did everything that was suggested to me. I got a sponsor. I read what I was told to read, and yet I really wanted to drink again. I reached out to my sponsor after one Tuesday night meeting and I told him the truth that I really wanted to drink. I asked him what to do and he wrote down a list of things which included attending meeting every day, asking God for help in the morning, thanking him at night, and reading the big book. When he was done with the list, I asked him, is this, is this what I need to do to recover from alcoholism? I thought he was going to say yes. Instead, 
He surprised me and said no. He explained that I needed to do everything on the list just to not drink for one day. And I asked him the same question, but I phrased it a little bit different. I think this is the most important question I have ever asked anyone. What do I need to do to recover from alcoholism? Question mark. What do I need to do to recover from alcoholism? He said, you, you need to work the steps. When he said that, he was as if a bell had rung. His answer cut through the haze, and I knew right away that I had to work the steps if I wanted to live. We started working the steps right there and then, there in the church kitchen where the meeting was held. We continually active working the steps in writing until I completed a first pass through all 12 steps. Then we started all over again. Up until that moment, I thought that my problem was alcohol and that the solution was to stop drinking. My experience is different from that. Now I know that my problem is alcoholism and the only solution is recovery, which I can find by working the steps. That might sound like I'm playing with words, but I am not. If I don't know the problem, then I can't possibly know the solution. The problem was more complicated than just drinking. It was that my life had become unmanageable and I, have, I was using alcohol to medicate the, plain, the pain of the unmanageability. Once I started working the steps four through nine, much of the pain was relieved and so was my desire to drink. After working those steps and then 10 and 11, I had the spiritual awakening that the big book describes and my life was changed. The steps changed my life by changing the focus of all my efforts from 1998 to 1990. My focus was on not drinking. I was doing battle with alcohol every day. My entire focus was on abstinence. But when my sponsor explained to me that I needed to work the steps if I wanted to recover from alcoholism, the focus changed from not drinking to recovering from alcoholism. I can tell you that in my life there is a big difference between the two. I have a complete different life now. I am an active member of AA and I look forward to meetings. I continue to work the steps as part of a monthly step study group that I participate in. I like to share in meetings that I am the luckiest guy I know. My biggest problem is that I forget it sometimes. I wake up sober next to my best friend who married me 19 years ago. Our daughters have never seen me drunk. I've been able to travel all over the world. I earn a doctorate in my chosen profession. I have been able to give back and make amends to all the people I have harmed. I even been able to contribute to the recovery process of those who work in my profession. I have the opportunity to go to work every day and help provide for my best friend and our girls. And most of the time, I can say that I have a lot of fun doing it. Hal H. from Berwyn, Pennsylvania. Fernando, alcoholic. I am reading a story today from the grapevine. I remember when I was a kid, ran away from home at 16, 17, got together with some hippies. We used to live by a train track. It was so close, I mean, to say it was uh, 30, 40 feet, 
would be uh, probably an understatement. Um, it would rumble the house. After a while, you get immune to it. But we used to get drunk and play chicken, put panties on there, do all kinds of stupid things that, uh, you know, I dread it because it, my my hand is worth a billion dollars, and I used to put my hand on the railroads, smashing pennies, put pennies on the while the train is passing in motion. So um, you try that. Don't tell no one I said that. All right, let us open this meeting with a moment of silence, followed by serenity prayer. I'm going to be reading from Grapevine of October 2018. All right, God. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Okay, our story is Madman. A newcomer gets a brand new job at an advertising agency selling liquor. What could possibly go wrong? Amen. This is the, uh, the main article of the book. I guess it's the best one. Here we go. I arrived at my first AA meeting unemployed and unemployable. I had last worked in a San Francisco advertising agency. After getting fired, I found every door in town closed to me. About a week into sobriety, I got a call out of the blue from an ad agency desperate to hire. I had worked with one of their executives earlier in my career when my vendors were confined to weekend and holiday. She set up some interviews for me. I got hired. They were all, after all, desperate. I started work at this agency almost immediately. I was assigned to the agency's liquor account, a brand name I was well acquainted with as a consumer. I, it did not occur to me to ask anyone in my AA meeting if accepting the job was a good idea. That was something I had not yet learned to do. I did wonder how I would handle product tasting and client entertainment. I was sure that at some point I would be fired. Drinking was part of the job, so or so I thought. My new employer had Quint, Q-U-I-N-T, Quite essential, 1980s vibe. Is that what it says? Especially when it came to drinking and drug use. Each afternoon, there was an open bar in the office. A copyright I worked with disappeared from the set of a commercial shoot. Lost on a week-long bender, that did not affect his employment. An art director overdosed and died in the mailroom. And this was during my first 90 days at the agency and in AA. I did attend AA meetings in the evenings, although I had my newcomer priorities. Work always came first. I simply did not take anyone in AA seriously who suggested that a meeting might take priority over work. I simply did not take anyone in AA seriously who suggested that a meeting might take priority over work. At six weeks dry, if not especially sober, I got a call from the VP of agency operations. She served as enforcer for our hothead CEO. She spoke with a jarring directness. We call her the dragon lady. 
I had no sooner sat down across from her than she held out a letter. With a flick of her wrist, she made the paper crack like a whip. Explain, she said. The letter had come from bankruptcy court, asking for confirmation of my employment and salary. Yes, I arrived in AA a financial wreck, too. I somehow thought I could go through bankruptcy without my employer ever finding out. I had to give the dragon lady an answer, and fast. Any other day, I would have come up with some convoluted explanation delivered with conviction. Some people are skilled at reading spreadsheets. I excel at creating confusion. <laughs> Instead, of, I simply burst into tears and I confess, I am an alcoholic and I am an AA and I have 42 days. I am going to get fired. Am I going to get fired over this? She passed me a box of tissue. In light of what you just told me, your job is definitely in jeopardy, she said. The agency is leery of putting alcoholics with money problems in position of authority. She started quizzing me on where I went to meetings. I told her I went almost every night to Trinity Church and afterwards out for pie and coffee at Mrs. Brown's feed bag. I understand what you're going through, she said, her voice softened. You see, I am an alcoholic myself. I have 10 years of sobriety and I, I too, am a member of AA. Then she folded up the letter from the court and put it on a file on her desk. Fortunately, she added with a slight smile, I'm an officer of the company and can take care of this. No one here needs to know. I sat there stunned. I go to a meeting every day at lunch, she continued. You should join me. From that moment on, I didn't think of her as the dragon lady. I call her by her name, which I'll abbreviate as H. Every day, unless a work obligation got in the way, a real one, we went to what we call micro-meetings because they lasted 40 minutes. We grabbed a sandwich at a nearby shop, then dashed to the AA meeting. One day, I heard a speaker named John. He referred to himself as Madman. I thought I knew what he meant. He turned out to be the owner of a rival ad agency. He knew my employer and the crazy environment I worked in. He became a kind of work sponsor. Whatever I was stressing about, he understood. In a way, people outside the business did not, and he had so much experience that helped me stay sober. At 90 days, I had no choice but to attend my client's annual sales convention in Phoenix. I've been told to expect the boost to flow. Sales guys in this industry had well-earned reputation. Nothing H or John said convinced me not to go. My irrational fear of being fired all the time got the better of me yet again. I went. The sales convention, convention quickly reached a level of drunken debauchery. By the end of the first day, I felt crazy. I felt on the outside a freak. I expected not to have a job by the end of the night. I felt the urge to drink. I felt the urge to drink roar back. It scared the hell out of me. I walked out the street and hailed a taxi. With the Phoenix meeting directory in my pocket, off I went to, a, to find a meeting. I ultimately ended up at another hotel where an AA convention was underway. I slipped into the back of the banquet room as the speaker was introduced. It was Bill A. from San Francisco, a man I knew from meetings at home. I joined the receiving line after Bill spoke. He immediately recognized me. I told him I wanted to go through the steps. I also asked him if I, 
if he would be my sponsor. He said yes. Ten years of sobriety later, I was an executive at the same ad agency, working on a Napa Valley winery account. I had never tasted the client's products. They liked my work and didn't seem to mind. In fact, they asked me to be their director or marketing. Go figure. This time, I did ask my fellow AA members for help, and I ended up turning down the job. Today, I have over 30 years of sobriety. When I look back on that first year, I feel such gratitude. Regardless of the situation I find myself in, an AA seemed to jump into my path. I just had to do my part, not drink and ask for help. Of course, in those days, that was major. Anonymous, New York, New York. Our grapevine today is coming to us from the year 1986, December. Here we go. A worldwide forum of individual opinions, recovery experiences, and reflections on AA Today. Grand Door Policy from Massachusetts Hyannis. The June article titled Restricted Zone by R.W. of Berea, Ohio, merits a second reading by every AA grateful enough to want the program and the fellowship to always be available to the alcoholic who still suffers. The proliferation of special specialty groups just isn't in keeping with AA principles. AA literature details the great effort to the founders and early members to make the fellowship inclusive. Bill said it at best. The woman said they were different. The skid roar said he was different. Even more loudly, the socialite said the same. So did the artists and the professional people. The rich, the poor, the religious, the agnostic, the Indians, the Eskimos, the veterans, and the prisoners. When I arrived sick and desperate at AA's door, nobody asked a single question about the irrelevant details of my life. My profession, religion, family life, education, arrests, etc. If they have had, I might still be out there drunk, though many, though more likely dead or permanently institutionalized. The first AA who greeted me asked, are you having trouble with booze, brother? The question chilled my shaking body right to the marrow. In seven words, he had asked the only question that really mattered. Then and now, I couldn't even nod and an answer, but he knew. He stuck out his hand and in five more words, reassure me you're in the right place, he said, as he shuffled back into the kitchen to finish making the coffee. So this day, I don't go join or attend specialty groups, though I make one of their meetings when I travel, if that's what's, that's all that's available. I have no objective to their right to exist, but my experience tells me that anything exclusive inevitably becomes intolerant. Asked to sum up the AA Fellowship and Program in one line, Bill said, Honesty with, honesty with ourselves and others gets us sober, but it's tolerance that keeps us that way. Again, 
honesty with ourselves and others get us sober. But it is tolerance that keeps us that way. This is by J.R., a letter. The next, in a further issue, we hope to publish a variety of opinions on the questions of special interest groups, both pro and con. But we don't want to have a, a great session. So please keep the focus on the constructive sharing. The editors. Mistaken identity. This letter comes to us from Houston, Texas by an EK. One evening recently, I was home alone and the phone rang. It was a person whose voice has always filled me with fear and its first cousin, anger. For some reason, I did not overreact. I stated my point of view quietly, but fir very firmly. This response was, this response was met with complete surprise by my caller. She said that she didn't know what had come over her and that I wouldn't be hearing from her again. Smiling, I replaced the receiver. I knew what had come over me. This program really works. I no longer I no longer need to fear people, places, and things because I feel powerless over them. With a growing dependence on a great power than myself, I had a confidence and peace of mind that I never believed possible. When my living problems occur, I had no reason to panic because I know, know that if I will just be still and listen, my answers will come. My higher power is always there waiting for me to call on him. Because of this knowledge, on many occasions, I have, I behave as a mature adult. Could it be that God is challenging me? Question mark. Our next story is from Bremerton, Washington. It was a Christmas day in 1984. My wife had invited her folks and her brother over for dinner. We were eating around 2 p.m. This gave me enough time to go running. I had discovered running three years previously and because of my compulsive nature, I had taken up running marathons distance. But that's another story in itself. I had been on the road for an hour or so, which had taken me past a new apartment house close by where three public telephones primarily were used by the tenants. As I approached, I could see a rather large middle-aged woman talking on one of the phones. As I got closer, I could see in her some of the telltale signs of alcoholism. The bloated face, luggage under the eyes, that is heel pressure. Oh, sorry. As I approached, I could see a rather large middle-aged woman talking to one of the phones, talking in one of the phones. As I got closer, I could see in her some of the tales, tale, telltale signs of alcoholism. The bloated face, luggage under the eyes, and the disheveled appearance. 
She looked strangely familiar, and it came to me who it was she reminded me of. My mother. It was my mom. Briefly, I heard her conversation asking, I think, a young child that he had gotten from Santa. This experience may not be important to anyone else, but for this alcoholic, it was the greatest present I could have received. You see, when I was 10 or maybe 9, my kid sister and I got a similar call from my mother, who had not been home for some time. The thought of this scene continued to penetrate my mind, and gratitude has swelled up by the time I arrived back home. I have two girls ages 7 and 12 and didn't have to wake up Christmas morning wondering where their father was and if it it hadn't been for AA reaching out to the alcoholic on February 1974 I could very well have been that person asking over the telephone what Santa had brought their children. Amen. Ideas for traditionalists from Kailua, Hawaii. I read the letter from J.H. Oak Park, Illinois in the July 1986 grapevine, and I have some suggestions to offer. First, if you're interested in hearing only about the 12 steps or the big book at the meetings, why not attend a step study meeting or a big book study? If they don't have one in your area, why not start one? Woo. I read the letter from J.H. Oak Park, Illinois, in the July 1986 grapevine, and I have some suggestions to offer. First, if you're interested in hearing only about the 12 steps or the big book at AA meetings, why not attend a step study meeting or a big book study? If you don't have one in your area, why not start one? For me, the, pro for me, the program is a learning process, learning to live without alcohol. I wanted to hear her. If they don't have anyone in your area, why don't you start one? For me, the program is a learning process, learning to live without alcohol. I went. I want to hear other AAs share their experience in sobriety. I am stunned that an AA member would be surprised to hear the topic of love discussed at a meeting. Even a traditionalist would have to agree that there could be no such thing as a back to the baby's approach towards sobriety. That didn't include love. I don't think Bill and Bob would have any problem relating to love or vitamin deficiency. Try a non-smoking meeting from West Lebanon, New York. This letter is being written as a request for more AA groups to consider offering non-smoking meetings, at least for the third trial. As an ex-smoker who quit only when unpleasant physical symptoms develop, there are some questions. As an ex 
smoker who quit only when unpleasant physical symptoms develop. There are some meetings I cannot attend because the smoke level is too high to tolerate. Others I can only attend in warm weathers when doctors and windows are open. Even in well-ventilated even in well-ventilated rooms, windows, and warm weather. Even the smell is often but not in itself enough to keep one from attending. We do not wish to trample on the rights of others and do not believe that, that asking smokers to refrain for an hour or two is unreasonable request. By W.H. Our last story is sent to us by from it comes to us from Sorrento, British Columbia by V.G. Thank you, V.G. I just finished reading Ham on Rye in the April 1986 issue, which begins with examples of mangling the steps. At my group meeting in other nights, which is At my group meeting the other night, which I had the privilege of chair, I asked a relative newcomer read how it works. He cheerfully agreed to do so. Uh, oh, boy. All right. Well, that's enough for me. I'm falling asleep. May God bless you guys and keep you and enjoy this day. Amen. Reading from Grapevine, October 2020 issue, about money. Welcome, says the editor of the Grapevine. It says, financial insecurity has long been an issue for alcoholics, both in our personal lives and involving AA matters. As we get sober, our relationship with money changes and improves. This is the hope. This month's special section features Helpful stories by AA members about their various experiences with money in and out of the program. In the story Why We Give, a former intergroup treasurer shares how AA changed the way he thinks about money and giving back. In Let's Make a Deal, an older timer remembers getting hit with a huge bill as a newcomer and how sobriety helped him face it. With a leap of faith, a member in Canada discovers a new career through an early sober job in $8 an hour. And in the story, World's Best Coffee Guy, a newcomer learns a valuable lesson about humility and his group's prudent reserve. The issue also includes stories of hope during the COVID-19 crisis. Grapevine and Lavinia are wonderful 12-step tools to help reach alcoholics. Whether in detoxes, rehabs, jails, prison, or even right in our own home groups. Check out our 2020 Carry the Message initiative. It's a great way to get gift subscription in the hands of alcoholics in need, especially now. Get your group's district area involved. Throughout this challenging time, our hope goes out to the still-suffering alcoholic. Grapevine is a great resource to stay connected. We have a brand new EPUB version of Grapevine now available for only $1.99 per issue, even less with a year's subscription. 
Visit aagreatland.org for details. Send us a story of your own experiences. Please have a safe, safe time. Our first story in this article about money is called... Here we go. The first story is called Why We Give. A former intergroup treasurer shares how AA changed the way he thinks about money and giving back. Here's a little background. I'm 46 years old with 26 years of sobriety. I got sober in August of 1993, right before my 20th birthday. When I came into AA, I was a hot mess, to say the least. I was prone to depression and anxiety, fresh off booze and painkillers, and I had thoughts of suicide. Now let's go ahead and read an article from the grapevine. And before we do that, let's go ahead and pray. God. I offer myself to thee to deal with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help with thy power of thy love and thy way of life. Amen. Great by April of 2022 of this year. I'm going to give a little plug for the grapevine so we all can send in our letters. Well, they can help them compile them and straighten them out if you ask them. Got an opinion about something in AA? Well, here's your chance. Since 1944, Grapevine has been a terrific place for members to share their thoughts and ideas. We want to hear from you. Each month, we encourage you to express your concerns about meetings, sponsorships, step work, business meetings, and more. Here in our pages, this month's feature section highlights articles from our What's on your mind? Call them. Take a look and let us know how you feel. In the story, what's in a number, a member wonders if he put too much importance in the amount of sober time he has. In tough love, a woman questions all the applause we often get people who keep relapsing. Another member shares how he became aware of our need to help make sure meetings are accessible in his powerful touching story, Making Space. And a member recalls how he learned a valuable lesson about the traditions by being a meeting wise acre and his cute tail, chicken, breast, 99 cents. Want to help an alcoholic in need? Give someone a subscription. Grapevine and La Vina are wonderful positive tools to help reach alcoholics, whether in, in detoxes, rehab, jails, or even right in our own home group. Join our 2022 Carry the Message initiative at grapevine.org forward slash carry dash the dash message. aagreatvine.org forward slash carry, C-A-R-R-Y dash the dash message. Get your groups, district, and areas involved. Also, every Monday, check out our new fun half hour Grapevine podcast featuring featuring interviews, jokes, and good old AH story at aagrapevine.org forward slash podcast. You can now follow us on Instagram at Alcoholics Anonymous um, bottom slash gb dot. 
Send us your stories and letters. We'd like to hear from you. Have a wonderful solar April, everyone. Okay, if you can now follow us on Instagram at Alcoholism Anonymous, Alcoholic Anonymous, bottom slash GD. Okay, that's what it says here. I don't know what Instagram is, but I'm going to check it out. Thank you, everyone. That was from the, the fellowship, the editor. Okay, uh, I read those three stories. Every one they talked about, I already read them in this, uh, in this thing. So I'm going to read the ones I haven't read. Okay, if you want to read them, you can get your copy April 2022. The ones I mentioned. But for right now, I'm going to treat Fernando into a new story. shares her thoughts about true helpers and people with hidden motives. This comes to us from Hawaii, from LT. A common mistake I used to make when I used to make when I first started attending AA meetings was that I put everyone on a pedestal. They were successful at not drinking and I desperately wanted what they had. After attending for a while, this old-timer asked me if I needed help going to my car. I used a walker. No, I'm fine, I said, because I was already used to the walker and felt competent getting around. Nevertheless, he walked me to my car and stayed there for a while, talking to me after I got in. As the days passed, this man became an advisor and a type of a counselor for me. This went on for a few months. When he asked me one day if I would take him out to lunch, I didn't think anything of it. That's how the relationship between us transitioned from advisor to work. Although he made me a promise to keep it a secret, we spent most of our time together at his apartment, although he liked to go to movies, so we would do that on Fridays. I fell in love with him and wanted to please him. It soon became apparent that he had a lot of financial needs and I was happy to accommodate In just a year and a half, I went to $80,000 supporting him, and he ended the relationship when my funds ran out. I didn't tell him I was broke, but apparently he sensed it. He, he started paying me back in, in installments, but this lasted for only a year. The last time I saw him, he gave me 20 bucks and said he wanted to resume payments. He seemed sincere, although I didn't really know if he would actually pay me back. Over the years, I've read articles on safety in AA and learned that there are things to watch out for in staying away from per-day predators. First, they sometimes introduce themselves to you early and present themselves as helpers. They may act like a sponsor who just wants to help a newcomer. Second, a transition occurs and they want you to keep the relationship a secret, even from a sponsor. Third, they tend to be controlling, limiting your time with other people. As I see it, feeling safe in AA refers in part to freedom from unwanted sexual advances, unwanted pressure to spend money, unwanted control over one's activities and friends. A newcomer to AA is often vulnerable emotionally and may find it difficult to differentiate between true helpers 
and people with hidden motives. What I learned over the years is that in the beginning, it's good to stay in a group and avoid partnering with anyone. Treat everyone with respect, of course, but don't assume everyone is telling the truth. If people ask you for money, just say no. This has been a hard one for me to learn. I learned to be observant and refrain from getting intimate too quickly. I think it's good for individual groups when they do their group inventory to ask a question regarding any predators or potential harmful individuals. If it's a problem, then the group can brainstorm about how to handle it. In my case, I lost money, but at least I didn't lose my life. As I approached 13 years of sobriety, I'm so grateful to the individuals in AA who have helped me and are helping me every day. LT Hawaii. You know, it's been my experience, too, that um, when a beautiful woman comes to AA or a good-looking man and everybody wants to help them, that they need to keep a stone face, a stone face, that they're there for their sobriety and it shows it in their mannerism and talk, and they have the eye of the tiger on the program. You know, they're not here for foolishness and stupid, stupidness all over again, especially without the drink or the drug. So, you know, I always, you know, people will pick up wrong motives. There are, I have lost $1,100 with a sponsee, and that's because they got into my checking account. You know, they're professional, going around. Uh, you know, my kids need diapers. They need formula. And by that time, I already fell in love with the kids. And by the time I found out they had taken $800 from my account, you know, called the gas company and said, well, who authorized you to pull automatically hundreds of them? And they gave me a, what is your account? And they gave me the last name of the person on board. That was my sponsee. And then when I approached them, he basically, he said, are you going to send me to jail? And they looked at the kids, and looked at the wife, and she, she had guilt written in her from the beginning, and I was buying pizza for her. But, uh, 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 and, you know, I must say my higher power had given me signs and warnings that uh, I just, you know, needed to keep my uh, hero cap or my, you know, that I can't save everybody, you know, to be aware that there are people out there that will take advantage of you. You need to punch them in the nose and, and say, I, I'm not a taxi, I'm not a, a car maid, I'm not a hotel, I'm not a money, I'm not a writing, and you got to pay your own phone bill. Amen. I did. We were not, we're not, uh, all we are is to give you words. That's all we got. We got words. <laughs> all right, our next story is called Time's Up. Should we limit the length of shares at our meetings? A long-term has some thoughts. Some years ago, an old man with many years of recovery approached me after a meeting at which I had shared. David, he said, you make good points when you raise your hand, and I hope you will continue. But here's the thing. Maybe you could focus on making only one point, not three or four. How well I have applied this sage in mental counsel over the years. Since I cannot say, but it is a suggestion offer one solution to curbing those like myself with a tendency to go on at excessive lengths at AA meetings. Another less simple method is to <clears throat> cut out the immoderate talker. 
But who appoints these guardians to police the group, and who police them? At one such meeting, frequently, a group elder personally interrupted a newcomer who had, in fact, been going on for a while, but then the group elder raised his hand and went on at an even greater length than the man he had silenced. Soon another man was asked to be quiet, evidently the mania for cutting people off was on. My own share was met with a hiss stop from a woman across the aisle who had a glare at me early in the meeting and was evidently adrift in the current of her own anger. <laughs> I think of it unfairly, no doubt, as a shut up and you shut up too, meaning <laughs> in any case, I have not been back since. <clears throat> there does seem to be a third solution to curb the member and avoid the rudeness of the self-appointed sheriff police. At my home group, I went back and member took up about seven minutes of the discussion portion of the meeting. It wasn't that he went and stopped, but that he couldn't. <clears throat> he had to say something and be the final word, as I at times have felt compelled to be. After the meeting, I turned to a friend and began to suggest that maybe, in spite of her previous opposition of time and sharing, we might want to bring up the matter again at the visit meeting. Before I had even finished, she said that she had been thinking the same thing. Throughout the years, my resistance to a spiritual timekeeper has been the first part of the short form in the nineteenth fiction. AA as such and their reorganized, and the first sentence of the long term of the same tradition. Each AA group needs the least possible organization. Borrowing from tradition two, I have had the vague notion that a loving God is present not only in our group conscience, but the overall conduct of the meeting, including what is said and not said. By this sort of reason, wouldn't the character of the meeting be altered by relying on a clock? rather than the presence of a higher power? And wouldn't, wouldn't a time limit be unfair to those of us who have difficulty organizing our thoughts and require more time than others to express ourselves? And doesn't the group benefit when some who feel the need take a bit more time to say what is on their minds than others? And what is so bad if some of us are forced to listen and do not get a chance to share? Do we not say, learn to listen and listen to learn? Such has been the reservations about regulation of sharing from the floor. And yet my home group and other groups in the community set a limit on how long the leader of a meeting can speak. So why not do the same in a segment devoted to a, a show of hands? Is there not the undeniable benefit of providing more members the opportunity to share their strength and hope, and so foster a greater sense of inclusion. And would not a time restriction possibly encourage those who hold the group hostage to get or utilize a sponsor? And it, is it not true that half measures avail us nothing, even with the secretary's reminder at my home group that we all be mindful of the late of our shares, have not some of us continued to go on and on? Well, group members will have their say on the matter of our next business meeting, where the group conscience will pres presumably be taken regarding timeshares. As far as me, like many others, I have gone to business meetings to business, 
to my point of view only to be swayed by the perspective of others. But where I stand now is to learn for change. My new reason being, for better or worse, simply this. If God works through people, can he also not work through a clock? Can a clock, too, not do what we cannot do for ourselves? Can a clock, too, not do what we cannot do? David, ask your opinion. Amen. I don't know what to say about that other than I saw them a clock when you have uh, you have speakers in Hawaii and they, they're limited to three minutes because there's so many. Anyone with 30 years or more have, can speak and you have 50 of them and me and you only have an hour and a half to the hotel room. I always think we should have three hours and let each guy speak six my opinion, why do we have to cut off and we're paying for a giant hotel that doesn't need to white for ITT? But I probably would get shut down because, you know. So I've been in meetings where they have a timer, like in Alamount, we have a four minute and then rings and then got a minute to wrap it up, five minutes. But we don't use it. In the other meeting, we say, limit your share of three to five minutes thing that rang in my head was, is that if there's a newcomer and a new person coming to the meeting, uh, it changes the whole scenario. I think the whole policy should be changed. Everyone should give their testimony uh, focused on the newcomer, how they got there, how they got sober, and how much trouble they were in when they got there and what they're like. And they can do that. Very interesting. The newcomer has precedence over the, uh, the topic. I believe, because that's my opinion. And I've seen it done so well in, in meetings. You know, even uh, Bill W. said this, called it the newfound strategy or newfound revelation that I needed to speak to a person to stay sober. He found that when he spoke to Bill. Bill spoke to Bob so desperately on that first encounter. And then when he went to New York, he realized that he needed another new person to talk to or he was going to drink. And that's how he started another group in New York. And then I believe then the Cleveland people started showing up there and they started to sober. It's a beautiful world. And that was sent to us by David S. from New York, New York. Amen. Our next story and last story is sent to us by Anonymous. Right and call up. Better than I deserve. When I ask someone in AA how they are doing, I sometimes receive the response, better than I receive. After more than 28 sober in the fellowship, I have come to dislike that response. When I first came into AA, I was told that there were not bad people trying to get better, rather that we were sick people trying to get well. Yes, I was a sick alcoholic, but I did plenty of bad things during my drinking days. My temper was not just violent, but volcanic, destroying all around me. That being the case, does my active alcoholic past forever define what I deserve? Does maintaining my sobriety and working the steps earn me respect for fair treatment? 
even happiness? Am I expected to man up and put up with whatever circumstances arises in my life because there are better than I deserve? Even Dr. Paul's third edition big book story, Doctor Alcoholic Addict, ends with the sentence, I can see I never had it so good. Perhaps I never had it so good. But considering my circumstances upon entering May 8, that does not necessarily mean they are fantastic now, 28 years later. Only within the past year have I come to believe that my marriage of 35 years is intolerable. I have struggled with this issue of what I deserve and what I have earned. When I was new to the program and complained to my sponsor of the time about my marriage and how I was treated by my wife, he would always ask, were you drinking when you married this woman? Yes, of course, I would answer. Then you have nothing to complain about, he would say. I believe that my sponsor meant well. He was attempting to teach me acceptance and tolerance and to make me aware of my self-centered existence. That attitude of acceptance continued for me through the years of sobriety, sponsorship, and working the steps. And I do believe that a genuinely, I genuinely worked hard at this marriage, becoming a responsible provider, father and grandfather, and accepting my circumstances as the best I deserve. Only with age, work hurdles, and pending retirement have I come to question this position of better than I deserve. True enough, I was totally dishonest about my drinking with this woman when I married her. It's also true that I needed to a controlling, domineering woman at the time, as I was convinced that this marriage would solve my alcohol problem, a problem which I so adamantly denied. Now, with the 12 steps and more than 28 years of sobriety, I believe I have grown into a different person with different needs, not reflect in the woman I married, not reflected. So now what? Do I deserve better? Have I earned something better? Anonymous. Ooh. I wonder he'd have put his name down, huh? <laughs> Won't let the wife read that. Don't be in the doghouse. Amen. You know, there's a lot of things a lot of us would like to do over again. Like, and uh, that's tough. You know, the life, the most important thing is that, damn alcoholic, I'm in a war, and the war is that disease is trying to get at me, and, and, and we're taking casualties and mending people up and fixing people up and getting them back in the, in the war zone, and that's to help and save alcoholics that want to be saved, people that are lost and want a way of living. That's the world we're living. That's our objective, helping others. It's the only way a family can stay afloat and have a purpose in life. That looking towards the future of helping others. And then God miraculously doing things for you that you can't do for yourself. That's the way it's been for me. And it's working. We have a peaceful, serene life. Guys, may God bless you. Let's go ahead and close this meeting with a moment of silence, followed by the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us of our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Keep coming back. It's working. Along Spiritual Lines, an article coming to us from A.A. Grapevine, August 1998. It's Always Dark at the Beginning. That's the title of it. It's Always Dark at the Beginning. We had a meeting on the topic of higher power, and I didn't speak, but I kept thinking about it. I was frustrated that I hadn't been able to come up with anything at all to say about the most essential part of my AA program. And I wanted to tell newcomers who were skeptical of religion that this was something totally different, something they would come to love and rely on. I wanted to explain how it differs from the God concept of the religion in which I was raised and why it is so reassuring to me, but I couldn't figure it out myself. I remember that one man, Bob, who has since died, used to say about his higher power, if it were small enough for me to understand, it wouldn't be big enough to do me any good. I guess his words explain my problem in articulating anything about who or what my higher power is and how it works in my life. But I still want to explore my own beliefs and try to clarify my thoughts. When I came into AA and for a long time afterwards, I reacted to the word God in much the same way that I reacted to the taste of a slice of lemon with a wince and a shiver. That had been true for many years, ever since college, when I stopped going to church and I decided that religion was simply irrelevant. I didn't believe in God anymore. I didn't see any reason to. For one thing, he had never responded to my pleas about my parents' drinking. He was all-powerful and completely loving, but he chose not to do anything at all to change the situation. I couldn't understand this, so instead of continuing to accept the mysterious way of God's love, I decided to give up on it and to focus instead on doing what gave me pleasure. The only problem was I did too much of it and did it for years and years, long after it had stopped being fun and after it had cost me and other people a good deal of pain. I was increasingly dependent on alcohol and really lost in the big adult world, unable to cope with the problems of daily life and suffering periods of severe depression. I grasped at spirituality from time to time. Eastern religions appealed to me. I took some yoga classes and was intrigued by this physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual discipline. But I continued to drink and was unable to sustain any of the practices as a way of life. I could do it for a while, but then I get drunk. After coming to AA, I was still weary of the word God for a long time. But I could accept the group as a power greater than myself. 
I could feel the strength there. Again, Bod had an explanation. He used the word synergy. Synergy. It explains a process in biology by which two or more organisms together are able to achieve an effect that neither can achieve individually. That made sense to me. I saw it happen week after week as we went around in the table and created a spirit that couldn't be found anywhere else. I was told that I could use whatever higher power worked for me, and I did. I liked the Native American great spirit that showed itself in nature. From early sobriety, I found nature to be a wonderful place to find serenity. I heard people say that a higher power can even be a doorknob. Personally, I don't understand how a doorknob can be any source of serenity, but I do understand that a higher power can be anything that keeps you sober, anything in your world that gives you hope and strength that has meaning for you. One time, I adopted a character from a children's movie my daughter was watching, The Never-Ending Story. In it, a beautiful little princess who must have been 11 years old calms some nervous adventurers by saying and her lovely soft boy, It is always dark at the beginning. I adopted her right then as a higher power. Her words and gentleness have come back to me again and again at times when I needed them. We all have our own personal inspirations. After I did my fourth step, I began to listen to the still, small voice inside me that gave me guidance according to how honest I was with myself. I had denied myself access to that truth when I was drinking. It hurt too much. Now, when I was sober, those difficult feelings were the key to my spirituality and my serenity, the material from which to make my new life. Somehow that truth inside me I knew was the voice of my higher power. When I'd been coming to AA meetings for several months, I had an insight that made me feel much better than I had in a long time. Surprising myself, I said at a meeting, God loves me. I was embarrassed after I said it. I figured everyone around the table was wincing and grabbing into the doorknobs. At the same time, the announcement was a beginning for me. I knew that I had a higher power who loved me no matter what. Whether I was a failure or a success, whether things were going well or badly, that was, not, was more than I could say for myself. I was a fair-weather friend even to myself. Before I came into AA, I was able to stay sober for a week or two on my own, but then things would go badly and I'd drink again. Why should I keep up this self-denial for nothing? Am I crazy? I'll never get my life together. I might as well drink. Or things will go well. Look at me. I'm doing great. Why am I sitting home alone and I would drink? I can't stay sober just depending on myself because I change too much. The same with other people. I cannot let my sobriety depend on them because they change too. I sabotage myself if I attach my sobriety to people, places, or things. I can, for example, pay too much attention to any material gains or successes I may have as a result of sobriety. What if I lose them? I might think I have a reason to drink.
and yet I seem to need something to hang on to. That's where my higher power comes in. Even though I still don't know exactly who or she or, or it it is, I know that it doesn't change with the weather or the circumstances of my life or the faces of the moon. I also know that my higher power loves me just as I am and has a plan for me. Maybe that plan includes being hurt enough for my parents drinking as a child to recognize the same patterns in myself, seek help in AA, and share my experience, strength, and hope with others who want to get sober. I know it doesn't sound logical, but it works. It's just too big for me to really define, and I thank God for that. Lindy from Carbondale, Illinois.